the widow-making, unchilding, unfathering deep. Poet Gerard Hopkins describes the oceans. Mankind sails their surface, but beneath the surface lies a, a dark, deep, even mysterious vastness. Well, this has caused sailors for centuries to guess, to theorize what happens down below. This has resulted in numerous stories and folklore and legend. There's been no shortage of superstitions. Many of these superstitions concern bad luck passed down from one nautical generation to the next. One of those superstitions concerns departure. Never disembark a port on a Friday. Never set sail on Friday. When you leave, you sail Saturday through Thursday, but never on Friday. Avoid clergymen. They bring bad luck. This all goes back to one of those Old Testament prophets, you know the name. In fact, the clergymen have taken on that name. Any clergyman deemed as bad luck receives the label Jonah. Bananas are bad luck. So is killing the albatross. This is an ocean bird. And you know the saying, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Then you have something called the phantasma. This is a spirit or an apparition. We get our English word phantom from this Greek word. In fact, we'll see it translated in English today in our text as ghost. In our text, we will see the disciples, these followers of Jesus, toiling in a storm. And they are going to see what they believe to be a ghost, But as it turns out, it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of this storm, in this harrowing event, they're going to find Jesus to be completely sovereign over the storm, fully sufficient, even worthy of worship. Well, believer, you too have a God in the storm. You also have a Christ who comes to you in the storms of life. You and I can take our fears and our doubts and even our small faith and give them to him. And he invites them to come. And he's going to do great things. He's going to teach us despite our insufficiencies. You know, it's been said that as believers, we are either in a trial or we're preparing to enter another trial. So wherever you may be this morning, God in the person of Jesus Christ, has a word for you. Open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, we'll look at verses 22 through 36. And this morning, we will make three predictions about Christ when the storm rolls in. Now, these predictions we will make are the kind that are certain. These are the type of predictions which are guaranteed. This isn't guesswork. Meteorologists may get their storm predictions wrong, but this morning you can be 100% sure. This is what you can expect in the storm. 
Christ will be consistent and Christ will be faithful. In the storm, he will meet us, he will be with us, and he will never fail. Let's look first at his control. Christ is sovereign, or Christ controls storms. Now, we concluded last time with the feeding of the 5,000. This was in the previous verses leading up to verse 22 in Matthew 14. We'll pick up there this morning. Verse 22, Matthew chapter 14. Speaking of Jesus, Matthew writes, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Our account this morning begins with a solitary Christ. Jesus sought this, this seclusion, this alone time. If you look back in verse 13, in fact, this this quest for seclusion was the whole backdrop for the feeding of the 5,000 last week. It was his original intention to get this time, to have this quiet time. Well, we saw that the crowds pursued him. They were quite aggressive in meeting him. And we even saw a compassion that that Christ displayed to them. He took five loaves, and he took two fish, and he multiplied them to feed thousands. Jesus confirmed he is God. Well, in verse 22 this morning, he now sends everyone off on their way. And remember, we discussed the type of people he fed last week as well. We might call them free lunchers. Jesus would say elsewhere, you seek me because you ate of the loaves and were satisfied. And the Gospel of John will go on to record what happened after this miraculous dinner. John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign which he performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. You see, Jesus senses what's happening here. And he is not about to deviate from the timetable of God. It is not time for the cross. It is not time for kingship. Jesus is king, He would always be king, but not by the dictates of the crowds, not on their terms, not in their way. So he sent them away. And I'm a bit suspicious that he sent the disciples away for a similar reason. He does not want the disciples interacting and beginning this kind of group think. He doesn't want them caught up in the moment. Literally, he compelled them to leave. But more than that, they also had some learning to do. Remember, these disciples, they just witnessed a full buffet created from this small lunch of a young lad. And they just witnessed the compassion of Jesus to prepare a feast for undeserving 
empty bellies. And listen to the conclusion. In Mark chapter 6, verse 52, Mark records the result. They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now, Jesus remains undaunted. Remember, he is a Lord who is fully committed. Their education at the feet of Christ is unmatched. Jesus invests in them. His commitment never ceases. And what he does this morning is he again sends his disciples to school. Again. He compels them to enter into the boat. I can picture him. Standing there, right along the shore, and he takes his foot and just pushes that boat off. I think that's Jesus that morning. Because he wants them to get going. Because he has a plan. He knew exactly where they were going. And he knew exactly what would happen. He's a meteorologist without error. Now we're going to come back to this in a moment. But in the meantime, notice what Jesus does. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So he climbs this mountain. I can almost imagine him looking out and seeing that boat floating, getting smaller as it, as it touched the horizon. The distance between him on the mountain and the boat on the ocean or the water, that distance increasing. <clears throat> Black clouds starting to swirl above the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus prays. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 speaks of Jesus. Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's a profound statement. That Jesus prays for us. We sang it this way this morning. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Christ prays for you in your storm. He prays for your heart and he prays for your circumstances. He understands it. Now I don't know how all of this works. How the Father and the Son are perfectly united yet Jesus is praying. I don't understand exactly how Jesus is ever present, yet he's in heaven interceding for us. But I promise you it happens, because the Bible says it does. Now, look at the storm the disciples encounter. Back in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew described one of these storms previously. He called it a megas seismos. You know the English words we get from those Greek words. You got mega and seismic. A seismic, as a matter of fact, we used to describe earthquakes, which may say something about the type of storms they encountered. Christ's disciples experience one of these significant events. And the Bible provides a few clues as to this event. Mark's gospel records them departing from a town called Bethsaida. Excuse me, they're departing to a town called Bethsaida. Over in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus, again, foot on the boat, sends them there. But by the end of the account, they land at a place called Gennesaret. 
If you're in Matthew chapter 14, you can look at verse 34. Matthew also records this. This is where they end up. Now, these are two different locations. And remember the folks in the boat. These are seasoned sailors. We're talking about professional fishermen here. They were blown off course by a few miles. And looking down at verse 25, Jesus appeared to them during what's called the fourth watch. That's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That means that the disciples, over the course of a few hours, went just a few short miles. That's how severe the storm was. That's the lack of control they could exert in that storm as professional sailors. In verse 24, Matthew writes that the boat was battered by waves. Another word that could be used there would be tormented. Mark will use the same word of the disciples. They are straining at the oars. They're tormenting at the oars, trying to keep this boat under control. And Matthew writes that the wind was contrary or opposite. And that helps explain why their boat can't stay on course. I mean, you can imagine these disciples. Here they are. They're, they're fighting the wind. They're pulling on the ropes, trying to control the sail. They're wrestling with the oars. Their, their clothes are drenched. They're getting hit with this lake spray coming up over the side of the boat. You know, I noticed in that rainstorm we had two weeks ago that it was actually raining horizontally how the wind blew. I mean, that's the disciples. They're getting hit from every direction with water. They would have tasted that. It's a taste of lake water dripping off their beard into their mouth. And the smell of rain. The odor of a fishing boat. And they had to rely on their ears. Responding to to orders or commands that had to be yelled. There was the boom of thunder. Because at this time, it's very difficult to see. Sight would have been very hard to come by. I assume that the storm would have shrouded the moon so you had no moonlight. With the wind and the waves, it was impossible to keep a lantern burning. It was pitch black. And when the lightning flashed, what a treasure, what a blessing to see something, to see anything out there on the water, to know that we are possibly going in the right direction. But what they saw brought no relief. Because there, in the flash of lightning, standing on the water, was something that struck terror into their hearts. A ghost. A phantasma, the word of verse 26. It's a terrifying omen to a sailor. It was a popular belief that these spirits at night meant disaster when they appeared. And they're terrified. Matthew says, they cried out in fear. And Do you know what might have been just the hardest part about all of this? The last person they saw was Jesus. And he sent them there. Into this storm. Haunted by this spirit. They're scared witless just before death. You and I will feel similar reactions in our storms. Our hearts will be flooded by fear. And it's in these moments that we must cling 
to truth. Because what is truth? Truth is that Christ is in control. Christ is in control of the storm. He was in control of this storm. He's in control of our storms. He sent the disciples into the storm. What is truth? He has a plan. He's teaching them. This is all very deliberate to teach them, to grow their faith, to make them, to mold them into disciples. It's also true that he is the ghost. That's the spoiler alert to all of this. I suppose if you read ahead, which I'm sure some of you did, you cheated. In verse 27, we see that it is indeed the Lord. That Jesus is with his people in the storm. That Christ is always with his people in the storm. You see, the truth of this is that they were in God's will. The truth is that they were in this terrible storm because they were in the will of God. This trial was not a punishment. It was a pruning. And storms are hard. And storms are painful. And storms are not the way we would have done it. But storms are God's will. And Christ controls every one of them. And he's with us in every one of them. He is in control of our storms. I want you to see next that he's not only in control of our storms, but he helps our faith in them. In verses 27 through 31, Christ helps faith. This is another guaranteed prediction for his people. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, our friend Peter often represents the disciples. He does so again here. He has these moments of great courage and bravado and other moments of weak, vacillating faith. We see both in our account in just a few short verses. But really, it's Jesus who stands at the center of this. And he speaks words of calm. Three statements. Verse 27, do you see them? Do you see how there are three parts to what he says? Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, if you look at that, those first and third statements both address fear. Both are commands, both are imperatives, and both are absolutely dependent upon what comes between them. Jesus says, it is I. This is so good. We want to look at each one of these three. We want to take just a moment. Jesus says first, take courage. This is one word. It's one command. It happens seven times in the New Testament. And guess who says it every time? Christ. It is Jesus who says to his people over and over, take courage. Take courage, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Take courage, Bartimaeus. Open your eyes and see. 
Take courage, Paul. You must also witness at Rome. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So on what basis can we receive this from Jesus as truth? What guarantee do we have? Well, it's that middle section. It is I. Jesus says literally in the Greek, I am. In the Old Testament, when Moses asked God, who should he say sent him when Pharaoh asks, why are you taking away God's people? God tells him to say, I am who I am. God is eternally existing. He is fully God. This statement by Jesus, some believe, is the clearest self-revelation of Jesus so far in Matthew. Putting himself on par with God. I am. I mean, to hear this, those Jews, the disciples in the boat, this, this, there is no confusion about what Jesus is saying with a statement like this. This is the very reason they need not fear. Jesus says, do not be afraid. There's no other command given as frequently in the Bible as this one. You know, for you and I as Christians, all reasons to fear have been removed from our lives. Even our deaths are predetermined. The Bible says, in your book, in God's book, were written all the days that were ordained for me. There's no editor of this book. This book is published. Christ is in control of our lives and Christ is in control of our deaths. That is the extent to which Christ is in control and sovereign. You and I do not control life and death. He does. And I would say that if we want to give control over to someone other than Jesus, to entrust our lives to someone other than Christ, to take it into our own hands, then there's reason to fear. Because no one else is Christ. And no one loves you like he does. No one's in control like he is. No one knows what storms are best like he does. No one is sovereign over your future like he is. And no one else can say, I am. He is a loving, sovereign, all-knowing God. Jesus is I am. Well, in this account, Peter's reluctant. But we see Jesus is not. Peter cries out, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus invites him. He says, come. We're getting into the uh, heart of this account here. We're approaching it. I just want to make two observations as we do. Um, first, if you're tempted to think so, Peter's not a bad guy. And I say that because I think it's easy to criticize Peter, not only here in this account, but also in the Gospels. He's a pretty normal disciple. And also remember, Peter represents the disciples. This happens again throughout other gospel accounts. It's almost as though uh, before other disciples speak or act, Peter's the one out there in front already doing it. And I say that because you and I ought to identify with Peter in some ways. There's something for us in this account. In verse 30, you can see Peter. Peter's getting shaky. He's looking around. He's feeling the wind blow. The storms tempting him to doubt. He cries out, Lord, save me. 
Jesus stretched out his hand and he, he took a hold of him and he said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? This, this moniker, little faith, that happens more often in the Gospels than we might like to think. Uh, actually, on three other occasions, Jesus also refers to his disciples this way. But notice what Jesus says here. This, this is a, a little faith. It's not a, a worldly faith. And it's important to draw the distinction here. To think for a moment just what a, a faith by the standards of the world looks like. Because faith or belief as the world presents, it tends to be aimless or vacuous. I sometimes see the word used as a um, decoration on the fireplace mantle or framed art in the house. Not that there's anything wrong with that as long as there's some content behind that. That's what we're driving at here. Faith in the world tends to be something that's more in line with self-confidence. Well, in the Bible, faith is in someone else. It's in a person. And worldly faith tends to do more with, with feelings. But again, uh, rightly placed faith is more sure than that. In the Bible, faith is resulting in, in action or in some kind of response to this person. Well, this night on the sea gives us a great example of faith. In fact, Peter's experience that night reminds us just what biblical faith is. It's three parts and we can walk through them. Faith begins with knowledge. Faith begins with knowledge. Now, someone may come along and say to you, just believe. Just believe. But biblically, we need to articulate what that belief is in or who that belief is in. Biblical faith is faith in someone. It's knowledge about Jesus Christ. But biblical faith doesn't stop there. It brings us to our second point. Faith accepts this knowledge as true. Faith accepts this knowledge as true. And the atheist illustrates a departure from us on this point. Because after all, many atheists know facts about Jesus. They just don't believe they are true. The Bible proclaims that Jesus is God. That he performed miracles. That he rose from the dead. Someone may quote chapter and verse for any of these statements, but if they don't believe they are true, they don't have faith. So one must have knowledge. One must have belief that that knowledge is true. And thirdly, faith is trust. Faith is trust. This is the, the active component of faith. And James gives us an illustration for this. You know this verse, James chapter 2, verse 19. There, James writes that demons also believe. In fact, we might be a little unsettled to learn that demons probably know more about the Bible than we do. They probably have a deeper theology. They probably know Christ better than some Christians do. But here is the great dividing line. They do not act on it. They have knowledge, and they know that knowledge is true. They're acutely aware of that, but they have no deeds, and no fruit, no obedience, and no change. You see, true faith has all of these components. I'm going to read you a verse. It's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and it illustrates these three truths nicely. 
There Paul writes, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, there's your knowledge, which you heard from us, you accepted it, believing it's true, You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. There's thirdly, the trust or the obedience. Back to our account. Peter understood who God was. He knew the I am statement from Exodus. He believed this to be true of Jesus. In fact, he was so confident that it was true of Jesus that when he heard that familiar voice in the dark, he called out to him. And he then stepped out of the boat. He acted, he he walked on the water. Was this a great faith? No. It was a little faith. It's what we would call an imperfect faith. And this is just the kind of faith Christ helps If you're in the room this morning and you have facts about Jesus, if you have some knowledge of him or knowledge of God's word, if you trust in him, Jesus will help your faith. Now, spiritually speaking, we might say that we are sinking, that, that sin is wrapped around our ankles and it's pulling us down, it's pulling us under. And the truth is that without Christ, we will sink. This sin, this weight has caused a separation between us and Jesus or between us and God. But to all of us this morning, Jesus says, come. Come to me. Come with your limited knowledge and and come with your struggling belief. Come with your imperfect life. Christ lays out his hands to take hold of you if you come to him. For those this morning who've done this, who are believing upon him, who are believers and have a relationship with the living God. Remember that at that time, it wasn't the the quality of your faith that saved you then, or some great quantity. And it's still not that faith that saves us now. None of us have perfect faith. But Christ is going to do much with the faith that we have. And he's going to do much with it in these dark storms. In fact, we might even argue that it's in the darker storms that we cry louder. It's in the darker storms that we're more dependent upon Christ. I'd say that in the sunshine, we have faith. But in the storms, we feel our faith. And we've said this before, but we say it here again, that that Jesus is in the storms with us. And the fiercer the storm, the nearer the Christ. So for those in the storm this morning, if your faith is little, if you're a doubting, Christ says to you, come. That's the invitation to all of us, really. Well, in this account so far, we've seen that, that Jesus helps little faith. And we've seen that Jesus is in control of storms or the trials of our lives. And I want us to see, lastly, that this Jesus generates worship. When all is said and done, when we realize these truths of him, there's a response. Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. 
And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding districts and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. I want to focus on the response of the disciples. They worship Christ. This is the natural response to Christ. And they, they saw Jesus up close. They hear Jesus walked on water and he, he helped Peter and he rescued him from drowning and he stopped the storm. And I believe verse 33 is actually the, the climax of the story. It's not just that they walked on water, but that the disciples finally acknowledged this truth of Christ. And that's significant because it's happened already in, in the gospel, in Matthew's gospel, but just not by the disciples. It was at the baptism of Jesus that, that God the Father saw that Jesus is God's son. There's another account where demons acknowledge Jesus as God's son, but finally the disciples are starting to get it. And they're responding to this experience they had with Christ in the storm. This is the effect that Jesus has on people. This is perhaps your testimony as someone who knows Christ. You have a relationship with him. He's, he's present in your life. It is a real relationship. And when you cry out to him, help me, he does. And that generates a response, a gratitude or a worship. And I would imagine again that all of this then is compounded in the stormier seasons. Worship being our response. Again, the world doesn't understand this. The world may even try to generate the joy and the hope found in Christ, but they can't. It's got to come from the heart. It's got to come from a heart that's experienced it with Christ in the storm. This account today made three predictions about Christ. And we're saying that all of them are certain. That in the storm, Christ is faithful. And that in the storm, he's in control. And he helps small faith. And that Christ is worthy of worship once we experience that. He is a God who's at work in your storm. I'd say that the worse the storm, the more it becomes about survival. We see that today with the disciples. They, they were literally holding on for dear life that night. But there's something spiritually true about this as well in fact i think there's some interesting parallels to draw just consider hurricane events that happen in our world today these are significant natural disasters and we know these events do great damage to to livelihoods they even claim lives they destroy homes they're sources of great destruction but even in the worst of these storms there is good there's been studies conducted to actually document the benefit of hurricanes, if you can believe it. There's some interesting parallels to our spiritual lives. Again, these, these physical, literal storms, terrible, hard, but good. Again, spiritually speaking, the trials of our lives, uh, they're, they're hard, but they're good. Some of the studies have concluded that hurricanes are excellent, 
at bringing rain to desperate regions of the world. They nicknamed hurricanes drought busters. I think there's something spiritually true about this. If we're struggling to pray, if we're struggling to read the word, trials renew us. Trials come along and they, they, they give us a little bit of a, a push or a little bit of a, a pull to help us along. Trials make us sober about our souls. If we're going through a drought, they can be one way to water that hard heart or that dry soul. Hurricanes break up something called red tide. Red tide are going to be large patches of algae bloom underneath the surface of the water. They're unhealthy for local wildlife. Well, spiritually speaking, areas of our lives can go unkept. In a similar way, sin can fester in particular areas of our hearts. Well, trials tend to slow us down. They provide a time for some, some healthy introspection. To break up some of these segments of our lives that tend to be put in a compartment or, or neglected or forgotten. Hurricanes provide what is called the global heat balance. And they move heat on a global scale away from the equator and and closer to the poles. Spiritually speaking, you and I may feel in this life that that God is far off, that that he's distant. He's not present. We also experience there are times when the Lord is particularly present in the cold seasons of our lives. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it well when he said that Peter, in this account, was nearer his Lord when he was sinking than when he was walking. Well, what else is true? We don't go praying for hurricanes. We don't go hoping that there's a storm today. But when there is, when God does, may we never forget that God is sovereign and God is at work in our lives. Let's pray. Father, it is easy to say that you are in control, 